The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Joe Biden delivers his presidential acceptance speech. Well, he's hoping it's going to get him elected president. The latest on the final night of the virtual Democratic National Convention. And Steve Bannon arrested by postal inspectors. Widens focus on agency. What does it mean for the U.S. Postal Service. This, of course, is Steve Bannon was indicted today. I'll give you the latest on that front as well. A lot to get through. Uh, all of that, plus U.S.-China escalating tensions. I just was speaking to, to, to uh, Keith Kroc, the Undersecretary of Economic Affairs. I was at the White House literally a half hour ago, and he was giving me an update on, on what things are going to happen in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and the response from the universities as they're telling folks to divest, divest, divest from China. Uh, the State Department's warning, sounding the warning sign. He says it's a foreshadowing. We'll talk a little bit about that. Mr. Lena Agafa-Palulu is going to join us. She's a Bloomberg National political reporter. Greg Bauer is former FBI assistant director, former U.S. attorney, and a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. He's got great insights on what went on with Bannon today. And then Adam Goodman. Adam Goodman, the Republican media go-to strategist. And of course, he's a Bollard Partners in Washington. He's been holed up down in Florida. Plus, David Jolly. I'm telling you, we've got an all-star lineup of insiders. So stick around. We're going to have a lot to get through. And we're going to go through a lot. Oh, and disappointing economic indicators from uh, jobless claims. My number of the day is the IRS forecasting 37.2 million fewer W-2 forms for next year. Wow. The IRS is forecasting that they're going to need 37.2 million fewer W-2 forms for the next year. We've got, uh, in the uh, on the, over the course of this show, uh, a host of different uh, economic indicators that we're going to check in with. But we begin tonight with the big story. Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential nominee, will address the final night of the virtual Democratic National Convention. Mr. Lena Agolfa-Palulu is a Bloomberg National political reporter. She joins us. She's been all over this story covering the virtual campaign trail, the actual campaign trail. And this is a massive speech for Joe Biden. Give us a preview, Mr. Lena. Hey, Kevin, this is indeed a massive speech. I mean, this is probably by far the most important speech in his lengthy political career. Um, you know, normally under any uh, election, this speech would be important. But this year, it might carry even more weight because of the coronavirus. Not only is this 
a nation in crisis. But remember, Biden has not been on the campaign trail. He really hasn't exposed himself to voters. And so today, this is really the moment in a primetime address uh, where he really has the chance to, to shape the way voters think of him and really reintroduce himself to voters um, that might only remember him as Obama's vice president. Now, what will Biden say? We're, we're expecting to see some of the themes that played out in the past few days um, in the convention. Those include party unity, party diversity, but also attacks on Trump and why he's failed as president to contain the coronavirus. Um, you know, but advisors to the Biden campaign say that the speech will actually be bigger than Trump and really an opportunity for Biden to make his case um, to American voters and maybe a more optimistic and positive tone. You know, I, I think this is, is, is fascinating because so much of the virtual Democratic convention has been the Democrats' effort to turn this into a referendum on President Trump. It's been a strategy that they've wanted. It's been a strategy that they've tried to utilize, whether it's Senator Bernie Sanders making an argument not about progressive policy, but more of an argument about his words, quote-unquote, defeating fascism, uh, or in former President Barack Obama's speech last night, in which he delivered a blistering critique and a rallying cry to the Obama coalition to reunite and get out the vote on November 3rd. But what I'm hearing from you, Ms. Elena Agafapalulu, Bloomberg National Political Reporter, is that we might actually get some concrete policy from Joe Biden tonight. This, as Republicans have tried to portray him as someone who is hiding from the American people. I really think so. And, you know, what's important to note is who Biden is going to have sort of um, – raise the curtain to his speech before him. We're talking about a former primary opponent. So we have Andrew Yang, Pete Buttigieg, Michael Bloomberg, Cory Booker, all of them, they, they ran against him. And now we're going to see them, you know, get on that stage and, and back him up. And, you know, remember what these candidates sort of stand for. Yang has a very untraditional base that he can sway. Bloomberg is a former Republican. Booker's young age and voice on racial justice. And then, of course, Buttigieg, his ties to the Midwest. And so we're really going to see sort of this diversity um, angle uh, coming in and all these candidates talking about issues that um, that Biden is going to back. And of course, we also have uh, former VP candidates uh, that Biden was vetting. He vetted in total 11 women. Three of those women will speak tonight. Um, Tammy Baldwin, for example, was the first uh, LGBT senator elected in 2012. So that's going to be an issue that's at the forefront. Of course, we have Tammy Duckworth, a former U.S. Um, Army veteran who's going to point to Biden's military ties. And so all of these points are going to be made before Biden hits the stage. And then when he does, you know, it's really going to be a moment where he's going to lay out his vision for America. Uh, just in terms of the ratings check, uh, I'm reading from the Los Angeles Times. The third night of the 2020 Democratic National Convention delivered the largest TV audience for the event so far with an average of 21.4 million viewers across the major cable news channels and broadcast networks. That's still, though, it's tracking well below the 2016 Democratic Convention. The event that back in the, the 2016 of Philly, uh, the DNC, um, that averaged 25 million viewers over the first three nights, which is 22% higher, 22% higher than this uh, virtual convention. Why do you think that is? What are they saying about the decline in viewership? And are they worried about that, that less people seem to be plugged in? I mean, listen, this is definitely a convention that's all virtual. And so I think it's been uh, harder for uh, both campaigns to sort of 
feed off of any momentum that they can build off on the trail and then later transfer onto the screens. Um, but, you know, uh, time will tell what uh, the ratings will be like for tonight. But, of course, you know, this convention comes down to this moment. And so I would expect ratings tonight to be a little bit higher because voters do want to listen to what Joe Biden has to say. Um, having said that, you know, we've seen a convention that's run very smoothly um, so far. And that was, you know, sort of beating expectations uh, uh, when it comes to technical difficult difficulties that could have, um, you know, risen throughout this convention. That was largely expected, but it's been smooth. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'll say about ratings is, Really, ratings um, are really just going to come down to how they compare to the Republican uh, National Convention. And for sure, uh, officials on the other side are taking notes on what the Republicans have done uh, this week. And, and what will be very interesting to, to see, Kevin, is how uh, viewership compares to what the Republicans can lure in next week. It really is going to be remarkable. In the uh, two minutes or so we have left, what has been the highlight for you? Not highlight. What's been the most notable item in your reporter's notebook that stood out for, over the course of this week? Um, I think that, you know, um, one of the most powerful moments that we've seen um, in this convention has, I think, definitely been uh, the, 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 the Harris speech. I mean, you know, the, the black daughter of immigrants from India and Jamaica, the first woman of color to accept the nomination for uh, vice president for a major political party. I think that, you know, that was definitely a highlight in the convention and really a turning point for the party. Um, and, you know, I think that that is uh, a larger theme that played out throughout the entire convention, just the role uh, that women have in politics and the representation that they have in politics was definitely uh, one of the most powerful moments. And what's something that went under? Uh, what, what, what's what are you going to be looking for tonight? Last minute. You know, I'm actually really curious uh, how the Trump campaign is going to be um, looking at tonight's uh, attack game. And more specifically, I mean, we know the president right now is in uh, Joe Biden's hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, campaigning. Uh, and we know that the campaign has really tried to portray uh, Joe Biden as someone who's sort of out of touch uh, with reality. And so, you know, what's going to be really interesting is whether we're going to see any Biden gaffes today. Um, and, you know, that's something that the Trump campaign is really going to use um, to go on the offense. And, uh, you know, the advisors of, of, of VP of Vice President Biden are hoping everything will run smoothly. Uh, and in fact, they're actually pointing to his speech uh, that he gave in, Pen in Philadelphia uh, following the George Floyd protest, right. where, you know, um, he sort of held his own and was able to de deliver right. a very strong speech, uh, pointing to that to basically uh, ensure uh, viewers that it's going to run smoothly. But, you know, All that's right. what I'm going to be looking at. All right. We're going to have to wait and see Mr. Lena Golfapalulu, Bloomberg National political reporter all over the story. Congrats on great coverage. And of course, I'll be uh, looking forward to what the team delivers tonight. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I, you know, we were talking in the break about the importance of catnaps on these long days. Kev, you gotta shut your eyes and as you know, my dad would never say when I was growing up outside of Philly and Delco. My dad would always say he would after work he would uh, come home he would sit in the chair and he would close his eyes and I'd be like oh dad's asleep and he would literally 
burst out talking and go, I'm not asleep. I am resting my eyes. And I'm like, like, dad could never sleep. He could only rest his eyes. So I guess if you have to rest your eyes, then uh, then you're doing something right. All right. Bad day for Steve Bannon. Uh, let's get to the latest. Steve Bannon charged with fraud over border wall group. Bannon's arrest by postal inspectors, meanwhile, has widened the focus on the service. But let's start uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Tina Davis and David Yaffe Bellany reporting, quote, Steve Bannon, one of the architects of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, was arrested and charged with fraud over his involvement in an online group that raised more than $25 million to help fund a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. Despite portraying the, this is what it was called, We Build the Wall fundraising group as a volunteer campaign, Bannon received more than a million bucks from the group and used some of it to pay personal expenses, prosecutors said. And he is expected to uh, appear in uh, a New York court. And actually, we just got a headline before coming on air uh, that he... Uh, is uh, released with restricted travel, not that you can really go anywhere these days, on a $5 million bond. Let's welcome back to the program the Gregory Brower. He is the former FBI assistant director, as well as a former U.S. attorney, and now he is a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Greg, I mean, I just want to let it. I just want you to, you know, get it rolling for us. I mean, to, for for Steve Bannon, I mean, this. I I, w- I got off air this morning and was uh, picking up an iced coffee, and I see this cross the Bloomberg terminal. I, I mean, my jaw dropped. I thought he here he's indicted. I mean, what was your reaction, and what does it mean, more importantly, for the broader uh, Trump coalition? Well, Kevin, it's great to be with you. This was a surprise, I think, to everyone. Steve Bannon had been the subject of a referral to the Department of Justice by the Senate Intelligence Committee recently uh, on suspicion of of misleading committee, making misstatements to the committee in in an interview with the committee some time ago. And so I don't think it would have surprised anybody to see potential charges relating to that referral. But this sort of came out of the blue. It is um, it's another uh, indictment of, of someone uh, close to the president. We've seen uh, charges and convictions of several close Trump associates now. Uh, this one's a little different um, and I think was very surprising. But we're talking about a lot of money here, uh, $25 million and uh, uh, three co-defendants with Bannon. These are just allegations at this point, of course, but the government seems to have a lot of evidence and it will be very interesting to see how this develops. It, it really is going to be remarkable. But what do you think it means, Greg, based upon your long uh, career, uh, both with the feds and uh, and now at Brownstein Hyatt, Farber and Shrek? What do you think it means for, how do I say it, for people who are very intricately linked to presidential campaigns on both sides of the aisle, and then they go off? And they maybe start a super PAC or maybe they start an online advertising venture and they use it to collect cash and they use it to yeah. to, to rake in big bucks. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I respect maybe are the feds paying more of a closer eye on this because there's, you know, you know, this, Greg, that's the talk of the town a lot of the times. Well, I don't know that this particular indictment 
uh, says anything or means anything with respect to uh, others who have worked on presidential campaigns or in the White House and then go off and and uh, you know make a lot of money uh, either in the private sector or well, that's legal. Uh, as you suggested running super PACs. Right. I mean, there there are many legal, perfectly legal ways right. to make money, including a lot of money um, by by capitalizing on your experience uh, in government. Um, this is is not that. This seems to be, according to the allegations, just a straight-up fraud uh, situation where you have, uh, at least, again, according to the indictment's allegations, a small group of people who get together and decide that they can capitalize on a, a uh, group of folks out there in the country who think that building the wall is a great idea, are willing to contribute, I'm sure, in some cases, small amounts, $5, $10 to the effort, and they all got sucked in. It's just a kind of a classic scam, as I read the indictment, that really preyed upon ordinary folks who probably couldn't really afford, for the most part, to be giving even even small amounts of money, but did so because they believed in this cause and uh, had no idea that their money was going into the pockets of these people. There, uh, as alleged by the government. There were three other individuals who were also indicted. And uh, let's read from U.S. Attorney Audrey Strauss's uh, statement. Quote, the defendants defrauded hundreds of thousands of donors, capitalizing on their interest in funding a border wall to raise millions of dollars under the false pretense that all of that money would be spent on construction. Uh, the right. The president, for his part... Uh, he tweeted out, quote, I disagreed with doing this very small, tiny section of wall in a tricky area by a private group which raised money by ads. It was only done to make me look bad, and perhaps it now doesn't even work. Should have been built like the rest of the wall, 500-plus miles. That's according to the president's tweet. If found guilty, Bannon, who is age 66, could face as many as 20 years in prison, prison though it's rare for the maximum sentence to be imposed wow uh this comes greg on the same day the same day uh that the trump administration lost a bid to block a subpoena by the manhattan district attorney for the president's tax filings what give us the update on the tax filing case is it, are they ever going to be made public or no well we've we've seen uh in this case in particular, just how long and convoluted the litigation process can take, uh, even when um, the, the party seeking uh, certain documents, like in this case the tax returns, is successful. It can take a long time through various appeals to actually get there. But let's, let's remember, putting aside the legal uh, the effort that the Manhattan DA is going through now, tax returns... Uh, uh, presidential tax returns or, or tax returns by uh, from a presidential candidate uh, is something that, that has been made public for decades now, just as a matter of course. The idea that any candidate would not produce his or her tax returns is something that, we, we, you know, we, we're like 50 years past that point. Uh, and so we, we tend to focus on the litigation and and the uh, which you know the DA is winning so far, but we really, in my mind, should take a step back and ask ourselves why should this district attorney or anybody else have to go to court to try to to get these tax returns? 
They should have been produced as part of the campaign in the normal course of modern presidential politics. It's really stunning that this president has not done that. It's going to be uh, very interesting to see how all of this plays out. Greg Brower is a former FBI assistant director and the former U.S. attorney and now a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Trek. Hey, Greg, thanks so much for coming on and making time for me. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Kevin. Thank you. And coming up, we talk more policy and politics uh, and a preview of the DNC plus the latest economic indicators. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Panel joins next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. The most important political speech of Joe Biden's long career. Tonight, the final night of the virtual Democratic Convention, we've got a complete preview, the policy, the politics, and every angle covered, all of that, plus some disappointing economic indicators. What does it mean for fiscal stimulus talks? What does it mean for the pace of the economic recovery? We're also going to touch on Iran and some foreign policy and the bombshell indictment that had my jaw dropping, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was indicted today, along with three others, over at the U.S. prosecutor saying soliciting uh, funds to build a portion of the wall. We're going to talk about that uh, and a lot more with an all-star panel. We've got David Jolly, who's going to join us. David, uh, of course, is a former Republican Florida congressman. He's now a registered independent. He's the executive chairman of Serve America Movement and the host of the new podcast, American Revolution. We also have Adam Goodman. He is a go-to Republican media strategist. He's also a columnist and a partner at Ballard Partners, uh, which is around the world, but he's based in Washington, D.C., though he's been down in Florida. So a lot to get through. Uh, but first, and and I'm going to play you my tape with, uh, I was just at the White House earlier this afternoon, uh, and I met up with the U.S. Undersecretary for State, Keith Crock, again. Uh, and, I, and I asked him what the reaction has been on the State Department's urging for, for folks to divest from their China entanglements. You don't want to miss what he told me. Truly, you don't want to miss what he told me. It's a preview of what is going to come in the short term on a nonpartisan front. Coming up, we're going to talk uh, about Iran uh, and, of course, the jobless claims data because the jobless claims, the number of Americans who filed for unemployment in the last week, remember two weeks ago it was fewer than a million, and I was, and, and this week it, it ticked up to above one million. So it was a disappointing Uh, jobless claims number. We're going to talk about that as well. But we begin tonight with the big story. It's the final night of the virtual Democratic National Convention, and Joe Biden is going to be speaking, the Democratic presidential nominee. He's going to be speaking tonight, uh, delivering what is without question one of, if not the most important speech of his political career. 
He's going to have to talk to southwestern Pennsylvania, to Flint, Michigan, as well as to Youngstown, Ohio, and all of the key battleground counties that he needs to take back if he wants to win the Electoral College. Remember, folks, he's got to win the Electoral College. He doesn't. The, the popular vote, is, as, as the Democratic Party found out with Hillary uh, back in 2016, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't matter. If you, if you want to be president, you've got to win the Electoral College regardless of of what you feel about the Electoral College. Adam Goodman is on the line. He is a Republican media strategist, columnist, and partner at Ballard Partners in Washington. Uh, David Jolly joins us, former Republican Florida congressman. He's now a registered independent, and he's the chairman of Serve America Movement and the host of the new podcast, American Resolution. All right, Adam, I'm going to start with you. What are you going to be looking for tonight? What does Joe Biden have to do to make you and your Republicans and the Republican Party and the president's reelection campaign nervous? Well, uh, first, he has to be coherent. <laughs> okay, let's start there. Now, uh, one of the, you know, the big guessing games was whether or not uh, Joe was going to go live or go taped. And, you know, I think one of the things that he's, he and his team have been most concerned about is the ability uh, of him to deliver, uh, especially when under any pressure. And I think. There is a sense of pressure about tonight because for a lot of Americans, uh, uh, Joe Biden is kind of coming out of the house, so to speak, and is going to be coming into their living rooms uh, and into their cell phones. Uh, to, and we'll have to deliver a message that is reassuring because the you might say up to this point, it has really been a contest, Kevin, of Donald Trump versus COVID. Uh, after the uh, Republican convention next week, It'll fully be a contest of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And this is where Joe Biden hopes to get a good start on things, especially in the swing states, which, frankly, is where the whole election will be decided beginning tonight. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see just how those swing states play. David Jolly, give us a preview. What are you going to be looking for tonight? Because he's got to win over people like you, David. I mean, and, and you're, you know, someone who's now a registered independent. You've, you've been frustrated with the Republican Party. You've been very public about it. He's got to win over people like you around the country if he wants to win. He does. He also has to win over the constituency that, frankly, swung the election to Donald Trump, which were your Obama-Trump voters. And I think that's – if there's one gap in the convention so far – it's that constituency, and, and how hard is he going to make his case towards that constituency? And I say that in the context that, look, you only have so much time for so many messages in any political moment, and that's true of a convention. What Democrats have done very well thus far is they've made the leadership case where Donald Trump has failed to lead, Joe Biden has, and he will, and he can restore integrity to the office, if you will. They've also made the case very strongly and effectively for diversity, a party that looks like America. They've made the case for history with the nod to Kamala Harris for the number two slot. All of it very powerful. But to your point, Kevin, what about the constituency that actually voted for Donald Trump, which is your largely white, working-class, labor-oriented constituencies and communities in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, states like that? What I'm looking for in Joe Biden tonight is we saw the case made against Donald Trump by both Obamas and Hillary Clinton very forcefully. Does Biden continue that narrative? Or does he let that rest and say, this is what I'm going to do for the next four years from a policy perspective, how I'm going to change the lives of every American, including the constituency that may have voted for Donald Trump four years ago? I find this so 
interesting. David Jolly, you just touched on something, and I got to I got to follow up on it because this is where I grew up. Is is with and and you know with the people who dis, who look at every election and they, sometimes they vote for Democrats and sometimes they vote for Republicans and and it's I think it's a foreign concept if I'm being really honest right now uh, I think it's a foreign concept for a lot of people inside of the Beltway and I, I, I you said David that you think that was one of the big gaffes your words but one of the gaffes was that the DNC didn't play. To those individuals, I just want to. We have a minute left before the jump, but I want to. I want you to elaborate on that because it's very important. Yeah, let's look at the primary. Joe Biden entered the Democratic primary as lunch pail Joe. He was the candidate that could win those constituencies. He never took off. It took getting to South Carolina and the African American Democratic constituency to propel him. Ever since South Carolina, that is the message he's been on which is great for a turnout election where you need an energized base. But what about a persuasion election where you've got to bring back those Trump voters that Democrats lost in four years? That's an audience waiting to hear what Joe Biden wants to do for them. That's the audience that Joe Biden should speak to tonight. And I think it's remarkable because because the Democrats and every source that I speak with on the, the president's reelection campaign, as well as strategists, they're saying that they want to make this a referendum. They're banking on making this a referendum election and a turnout election. And and it's and the Republicans are banking that it's going to be uh, about the same coalition that and the same type of strategy that that allowed him to pull off the victory in 2016. It, it's really it's two different strategies. So if you put on your political strategist cap, it's it's two different strategies in terms of uh, in terms of the in terms of what the campaign directors are saying. Coming up next, more policy and politics with our panel. Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Remember, you can catch all of our special continuing coverage cross-platform throughout the night on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for uh, Bloomberg Radio. And uh, remember, folks, David Weston, the David Weston, is uh, anchoring our convention coverage this week and next week. And I'll be at the White House. Uh, and we've got, you know, uh, Rick Davis, Jeannie Zeno, and the whole gang offering analysis on the policies, on the tax plans, on the foreign policy. Check it out. You know, and uh, and we'll be, we'll be doing it again tonight as we await for Joe Biden's speech. At the virtual convention, the the convention ratings, by the way, are down. They've dipped. They've dropped. Whether it's virtual, whether it's just trends, 
I was reading from the L.A. Times. Got it. Anytime you want to talk about rings, I always go, I always go to Hollywood. Uh, the third night of the 2020 Democratic National Convention delivered the largest TV audience for the event so far, with an average of 21.4 million viewers across the ma- major cable networks and uh, television networks. But, but, but it's still down, double digits down, 22% from the... Uh, the same time back in 2016. All right, we got to talk some legal legalities. Because did you see this? How could you not? I got off air this morning after the the morning rush, and I look at my Bloomberg terminal on my phone, and folks, my jaw dropped. Steve Bannon indicted. Steve Bannon charged with fraud over Border Wall Group. Reading from the Bloomberg terminal, Steve Bannon, one of the architects of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, was arrested and charged with fraud over his involvement in an online group that raised more than 25 million bucks to help fund a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. He had this We Build the Wall fundraising group as a volunteer campaign, and he received more than $1 million from the group and then use some of it to pay for personal expenses, according to U.S. prosecutors. Three others were also indicted. Audrey Strauss said in a statement, the defendants defrauded hundreds of thousands of donors capitalizing on their interest in funding a border wall to raise millions of dollars under the false pretense that all of that money would be spent on construction. President Trump and the White House are distancing themselves from Steve Bannon. Remember, they had a very brutal public falling out several years ago. Adam Goodman's on the line, Republican media strategist, columnist, and partner at Ballard Partners in Washington, and David Jolly, a former GOP Florida congressman uh, who is now the chairman of America American Resolution, and um, or he's the host of that podcast, American Resolution. He's the chairman of Serve America Movement. He's a registered independent now. Adam, I mean, you know, wow, this Bannon news really caught me by surprise, and I think a lot of other people. Well, it's not something that I'm sure the president wants to ballyhoo in his next commercial. But you know what's setting up, Kevin? You know what's, what's really, it's really setting up? There are going to be two rogues galleries that the, two, that the respective sides are going to throw at each other in ads and social media, et cetera. On the one side, the Democrats will throw at the president uh, the indictments and convictions of certain people in the administration, and now most likely adding uh, Steve Bannon to that wonderful list of luminaries. But on the other side, the Republicans, what the Republicans will throw at the Democrats in their rogues gallery are all the people that we perceive are going to be pulling Joe Biden's strings if Joe Biden's elected president. And that rogues gallery, which includes uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and George Soros and uh, the BLM movement, uh, all of those people on that side of the rogues gallery versus the indictments on the Republican side. The bottom line in all that, in my opinion, and because I think that's almost certain to happen in both, both, both directions, is when you think about voters and their self-interest, ultimately people vote their self-interest in the cool of night after all the passion and all the conversation and all the debate. What is more in, your, in, in my, the voter's self-interest? Is it a number of people I probably have never met? that went off to prison? Or is it people that will have dramatic impact and bearing on my life to be? I'm sure and I'm certain it's the latter. And that's why I can't wait for the dueling rogues galleries, the commercials to be fun to make, by the way, um, and see how that all plays out. But I think the relevance of the Bannon piece, which has got all of Washington, of course, a buzz, is less relevant 
in uh, Wisconsin, in Ohio, and Pennsylvania. But what is relevant is that what each side will bring uh, if in the White House in 2021 and beyond. And I think that's where the advantage will I, go to the Republicans. I must be reading too much Marcus Aurelius. I can't believe what I'm going to say. The I think <laughs> the what you're what I'm hearing from from you is that the Democrats are making an ethos argument, something that the Republicans and the Trump coalition did last cycle against Hillary. And now the Republicans are making more of a logos argument in terms of the policy. It's remarkable. Again, and we touched on it earlier. And David Jolly, you've been all over this. It's remarkable the different calculations that both campaigns are making. It really is a reversal. I mean, and especially the Steve Bannon stuff, which would have been a bombshell in any other cycle predating 2016, is now just a footnote on the news cycle. Yeah, look, I, I generally agree with my friend Adam's assessment, and it, I think it's an indictment somewhat of our body politic that we we don't really seem to care too much that we have a president that lives within a culture of criminality. I mean, this is the sixth close advisor to the president who's now been arrested on very serious, significant charges. We know the president's own history. He's been named as an unindicted co-conspirator in the Southern District of New York in the Michael Cohen case. And to Adam's point, I, I think he's exactly right. Republicans will brand Democrats as being the party of socialism. Whether Joe Biden professes socialist policies or not, they'll say he's part of the party of socialism. But the reason that works is because there's been a vacuum created by Republican leaders who have refused to call out the culture of criminality. Right from the very beginning, at the likes of Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, and Republican leaders had said, Donald Trump does not reflect who Republicans are. And we reject this culture of criminality. And if they had condemned him for what he has done, then it would be a different context that that all voters, including Republican voters, are operating within when they make a decision. But their silence has allowed Donald Trump to operate in this way. And now we just accept it as part of the political culture that Republicans have enabled. And so let's listen to the party of socialism arguments and vote on that. All right, panel's going to stay. Adam Goodman, David Jolly, coming up next. We check in with the State Department on rising tensions between the U.S. and China and a preview of what's ahead. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, plus full economic analysis on uh, the NASDAQ 100's new record, despite another million people, more than a million people filing for unemployment claims. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is headed to the United Nations tomorrow. The Trump pushes, Trump, President Trump is pushing the UN to renew Iran's sanctions in a blow to the nuclear deal. David Weiner and Saleh Mosin reporting on the terminal, quote, President Trump said he would call on the UN Security Council to restore all nuclear-related sanctions on Iran in an attempt to kill off the 2015 nuclear agreement and force Tehran back to the negotiating table. He said yesterday, mark it down. Iran will never have a nuclear weapon. We paid a fortune for a failed concept, a failed policy that would have made it impossible to have peace in the Middle East. It's a snapback. 
And uh, the move is going to set the Trump administration on a collision course with other world powers who say that the U.S. doesn't have the authority to reimpose international sanctions that they and they say that they won't go along. Secretary Pompeo will formally propose the snapback of sanctions um, within the next 24 hours at the United Nations. So Iran now at the forefront as well. Earlier today, I was at the White House. I spoke with the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs about escalating tensions between the U.S. and China. Take a listen to my interview with Keith Kroc. You sent a letter to the colleges and universities urging them to be on guard against the Communist Party's of China's influence on college and university campuses across the country. You also said that they would be, quote-unquote, prudent to divest from their financial endowments that are entangled with Chinese investments. What's the response and the reaction been to the State Department from the colleges and universities? By the way, the response has been really appreciated, uh, Kevin. And I was chairman of the board of trustees at, at Purdue, so it's talking to my fellow colleagues. And I sent it to the, to the board of trustees or the board of governors, depends what university you're at. Um, uh, the presidents are getting them as well. And it was about uh, the threat of authoritarianism from the Chinese Communist Party to academic freedom, to honoring human rights, uh, also in terms of protecting their endowments. And the fourth one is really safeguarding their intellectual property. You know, a Bloomberg investigation in 2019 found that Chinese companies were raking in hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of the uh, entanglements between the endowments as well as the communist, uh, as well as Chinese companies. I'm wondering if this is just a directive or if this is a, a warning to these universities about action, either executive or legislative, that might be coming in the short term. Yeah. It's really a heads up. And I think that's why they were really appreciative. Because I can tell you, most of these boards of trustees, I didn't know, you know, back when I was the chairman at Purdue, uh, that they, their endowment funds are invested in many, many Chinese companies. And it may be done through venture capital firms. It may be in, with the companies listed on the American exchanges. It might be with the ones listed on uh, Chinese exchanges. Or it might be through an emerging index fund. And as you know, uh, the president's financial working group uh, announced that, hey, uh, by the end of next year, uh, these Chinese companies have to do something equivalent to Sarbanes-Oxley, and they have to ha have their books audited, so they have to be as transparent as all the other companies on the exchanges. And that's really key, because right now, the risk is huge for you know the American, the average American investors. And it also creates an unlevel playing field for the companies. You mentioned Sarbanes-Oxley, and of course, just a couple of months ago, this was something that you and I had talked about in a previous interview. And since then, the Senate has passed with unanimous consent legislation uh, that would require for Chinese firms that are listed on the U.S. exchanges to follow and comply with Sarbanes-Oxley. Is the president supportive of that? And is that likely going to be taken up in the House? Well, I, you know, I think that when you see the results of this recommendation from President's Working Group, in essence, that's what they said. You have to be transparent or um, you have to delist. And, um, and you know, if these companies are forced to delist, they have one other choice, and that is to get their books audited. And, you know, there's probably a high likelihood they have to restate uh, their financials. And as, you know, a guy who's taking three companies public, uh, man, I'll tell you, if you have to restate your financials, that would be the time you'd want to go under the desk in the fetal position. 
that's about 200 companies that this could impact that, are, that, are, that are publicly traded. Are you nervous about the impact that that could have on American investors who are already, many of them in the middle class, facing significant economic uncertainty? Well, I, by the way, I think that's why really the heads up. And by the way, it doesn't end at the university endowments. If you think of the state pension funds, I mean, if you think, for example, the, the mother state pension fund, CalPERS, about a $500 billion fund. Uh, they have uh, tens of millions of dollars. They might even have over $100 million invested in Chinese companies. And as you know, their chief investment officer just was asked to leave. So, but the citizens don't know that. And I mean, the firemen's funds, the teachers' funds. And, and I think uh, not only has the president done a great job of, of waking up uh, uh, the world on this, but also Congress, you can see this is the one, one of the most unifying, passionate, bipartisan issues is this threat uh, from China. And whether it's in the universities, the pension funds, wherever it may be. And last Thursday, that's why we announced that Confucius Centers we now have deemed as a foreign mission uh, run by you know, a, 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 a foreign country. And so that's really to... Um, shine the light on it. And this really has to do with our transparency campaign that we're doing with Xinjiang, Hong Kong. Um, so it's important. I want to follow, follow up on this notion with state pension funds, because it, 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 when, at a time in which so many states are hurting economically and financially, and at the same time, their pension funds are invested, in many cases are entangled with Beijing, for example, how do states how, how do states untangle that uh, out of respect for the national security concerns, but also to make sure that the average American worker isn't going to suffer or lose benefits again at a time when they're already hurting? And by the way, that is the point uh, to what the president's working group did, uh, because if you look at, for example, the uh, example of Luck and Coffee. So what they were doing is they were cooking their books. We couldn't audit them. The stock dropped. I think investors lost uh, over uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And and by the way, there's probably a lot of other companies out there because if you if you're not audited, you can you can hide uh, subsidized revenue. You can hide bribes. Uh, you can make your earnings at the end of the quarter no problem. You can count subscription. Uh, you can count uh, uh, one-time uh, revenue as subscription revenue, which will crank up your multiple. So there's so many things that you can do. And for the sake of, of the United States exchanges, being the gold standard of the world, this is, this is a long overdue move. And a small move. business can't cook their books to the IRS. They can't. They can't cook their books to the IRS. And by the way, when you're a public company, I mean, I've taken three companies public. I mean, what you've got to do for Sarbanes-Oxley not only costs a lot of money, but, it, but you've got to have your best talent, and it's got to be super clean. So these clean investments and these clean funds and these clean stock exchanges are really key um, to upholding the, the gold standard of our financial system in the United States. Final question for you. What's next in terms of the process here on this particular issue? Uh, what's coming down the pipeline in the short term? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see uh, what will come. That's totally the president's decision. But I think one of the things in terms of the universities, uh, here's, here's an interesting thing. So the college uh, uh, Democrats and the college Republicans got together and they signed a joint letter about the threat from the Chinese Communist Party. The kids Party. agree. The kids agree. The kids agree. <laughs> oh, 
of the kids agree. That was uh, Keith Rock, <laughs> the Undersecretary of State for Economic Affairs, speaking with me earlier uh, on at the White House. Uh, and you can watch that on Bloomberg Television, uh, and it'll be cross-platform wherever you get the Bloomberg. Uh, but in the 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern hour, it's going to air. Uh, so we have that on that front as well. Tomorrow... I'm going to be speaking with Brian Hook. He is the U.S. Special Envoy for Negotiations with Iran, uh, the individual driving the conversation uh, inside of the administration, the go-to person at the State Department on, on U.S. and Iran policy. So we are going to talk with him as well. And Guy Snodgrass, I'm hoping, will come on the program because I texted with him in the break and I said, I just quoted Marcus Aurelius. I, I feel like the stoic in me, you know, Guy, because he's the former chief speechwriter ever at the uh, – uh, for us? For us? No, for, for the Pentagon – uh, and he's got a new book coming out on fighter pilots because he's a former fighter pilot, which I cannot wait to read. He just sent me a copy. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. You know, I think back to the some of the most historic moments of the conventions, and especially for the Democrats, we've been talking a little bit about that all week. Uh, and one of the moments that I keep coming back to, Bill Clinton, when he said it's about the economy stupid. And I look at these crosstabs on these polls, and it's the one issue, the one issue where President Trump is still edging above Joe Biden, his challenger. And so as I am watching tonight and covering the uh, Democratic presidential nominee speech, I'm going to be listening like, uh, I don't I was going to say listening like a hawk, but I don't think, I think I have my, I think I have my comparisons jumbled there. I'm going to be listening carefully, attentively, uh, to what he has to say specifically about the economy, as I know will my colleague David Weston, who's going to be leading up our coverage tonight, cross-platform on Bloomberg TV and radio, simulcast. Uh, and I'll be at the White House as well uh, for reaction and what not. Speaking of the economy jobless claims today, and this is the thing that's on my radar, jobless claims today were not too good. It was it, it, it missed the mark in terms of estimates. Uh, the headline was the U.S. jobless claims unexpectedly increased to more than 1 million, continuing claims declined to lowest since early April. New Jersey, New York, Texas post larger gains in new claims. Read Pickard on the terminal. Applications for U.S. unemployment benefits unexpectedly increased last week, a stumble for the labor market in its long road to recovery. Initial jobless claims, as I said, in regular state programs rose by 135,000 to more than 1.1 million in the week that ended August 15th, according to the Department of Labor. Then you couple that with continuing claims, which is the total number of Americans claiming ongoing unemployment assistance in those programs. That decreased to 14.8 million in the week that ended August 8th, which is the lowest since early April. It's going the wrong way. So the trend when all of this peaked, and if you go onto the terminal, you can really see this. Um, it, it spiked in March, like March 27th, remember? And then it's a giant curve downward. Uh, but again, th what people want to see is below a million 
for these unemployment claims. And it was a 1.1. It was a 1.1 mil for, for last week. So that's what's on my radar. And the reason I bring it up to the panel which is, of course, Adam Goodman. He's a Republican media strategist, columnist, and partner at Ballard Partners in Washington, D.C. And David Jolly, a former Florida congressman, now a registered independent. He's the executive chairman of Serve America Movement and the host of the new podcast, American Resolution. The reason I bring it up is because I think it's going to put more pressure on Speaker Pelosi and Leader McConnell to get that fiscal stimulus across the finish line Remember, Speaker Pelosi is going to bring folks back this weekend to vote on a $25 billion U.S. Postal Service package. But I think it's going to be the foundation for the skinny deal, Adam Goodman. I think that this these bad economic indicators, that it's going to be the foundation to put pressure on folks to get to some type of skinny deal, and then maybe they'll bring it up again in the lame duck. Am I wrong, Adam? Uh, you're not wrong. I'm, I'm very disappointed, frankly, in, in all sides that— uh, with so much on the line and so many Americans suffering, that some of the issues that have become the predominant issues that everyone seems to be focusing on, including uh, the United States Post Office, uh, has sidelined uh, Americans uh, who are in increasingly desperate shape and are looking for Washington, which it does very infrequently, actually to get things done when we need things to get done. And so, yeah, so it's, it's a big disappointment. What you said, though, um, Kevin, about chain, about the economy, um, and about Bill Clinton and, 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 and the speech. And so the issue in this election is clearly the economy. It always is the economy. It almost always, rather, is the economy. I, mean, I guess with apologies to McGovern and some others uh, who fell because of different things, but generally it's the economy. Um, and uh, if you look at the indices, the market indices, you know, the Dow is at 28,000, which is shockingly high compared to what has happened to us over the last five months. NASDAQ is setting records. Uh, all those things are, are very encouraging and normally reinforcing of an incumbent's reelection. Uh, the COVID uh, situation has obviously thrown all these things uh, kilter. And we'll have job numbers, frankly, Kevin, that'll be good or not good, depending on week to week, for a while possibly until you know, we really have COVID-19 handled and in our rearview mirror. But if, the, but if Americans at, at the end of the game uh, are going to decide on who's best for America's economy moving forward. That's a message, frankly, that I think Joe Biden has got to reassure Americans on, maybe beginning tonight. Um, and his biggest challenge in all this is Joe Biden, regardless of how much you appreciate his 45-plus years of public service, he doesn't look like a candidate who is kind of positioned or ready to lead America into the future. I think he's got a, a wonderful resume and, a, and, and wonderful credits. But if you look at him and interviewed for leaders to lead America ahead, Joe Biden would not make the final cut. He just wouldn't. And uh, I think what Bill Clinton did in 16, he tried to call for change. He told Hillary, look, you know, Hillary Clinton, that is actually in a speech. You're going to be the agent of change. If Biden is an agent of change, Americans want to know what that change looks like. And I think that's what we're going to see again, beginning tonight. Well, that's a really interesting point. David Jolly, what's on your radar? What can be something that folks aren't talking about? Take me uh, to some issue or some nuanced angle. What's on your radar? What do you think needs more attention? Well, look, I, I think it's a fair question. Does Congress do anything between now and November? And one of the things I'd be looking at is I think two or three weeks ago when Donald Trump had that Saturday night executive order storm, some of them 
really meaningless, others meaningful but constitutionally questionable. Does McConnell say, no, we're not doing anything on the Hill because in the inaction of the Congress, it empowers Donald Trump to act by executive order, which set aside the hypocrisy of the Republicans' approach to that given the Obama years. But that is in Donald Trump's style. And, you know, on the on the economy, I agree with what Adam has said. I've I would I would paraphrase what Carl Rove said to Sean Hannity last night or the night before, which was, if Donald Trump would be disciplined, he could win this race on the economy. But he keeps stepping on his own message. And, you know, I liken Donald Trump's rise to the office as somebody from reality TV to that of Ronald Reagan, somebody experienced in acting. The difference between the two is this. Ronald Reagan wow. knew how to play the role of president. Donald Trump just knows how to grab the headline. And it's usually disastrous, and it creates anxiety the way he grabs a headline. If Donald Trump actually could play the role of president, I think he'd be leading Joe Biden right now. But he's shown in three and a half years he's incapable of doing that. Ah, it's going to be fast to see the political junkie in me listens to YouTube uh, veterans of this. And I'm like, oh, all right, that was, the, that was the extra cup of coffee I needed as I head to the White House for like five more hours to go through our coverage. Uh, because this is why we do it, right? I mean, the political junkie me, it's a virtual convention. It's Joe Biden. You know, you've got the president of the United States in his hometown against his political opponent eating pizza. He had pizza. Hey, they should have went to Pika's. Delco, you know, or Renato's even, or, or, or Pinocchio's, my personal favorite, Pinocchio's and Delco. Get yourself a pepperoni, you know? I mean, come on. All right, gents, thank you so much. Adam Goodman, Republican media strategy columnist and partner at Ballard Partners in Washington. David Jolly, former Florida congressman, executive chairman of Serve America Movement and the host of the new podcast, American Resolution. I'll leave you with this before we go. I'll never forget when I was covering candidate Trump and he took us to a Wawa and here I am in the press pool as it's called and he's eating soft pretzels and then he gets these cheesesteaks and I'm thinking to myself you know the one time I actually wanted to break the rules and say could I have a soft pretzel we're in my hometown you're eating my favorite foods and instead I'm just typing about it and tweeting about it instead of getting to enjoy it oh it's so rough to be Kevin Cerilli it's not I'm grateful thanks for listening much more tomorrow Brian Hook from the State Department and complete reaction uh, on the on uh, President Trump's reaction to Joe Biden's speech. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.